do appreciate the presence of everyone today. We do have a number of guests with us today. We're really glad you're here. And uh, our prayer is that uh, we'll worship God together uh, sincerely and, uh, and genuinely, that we'll be built up by that experience and that we'll effectively praise God as well. And so we're glad each one is here this morning. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. To 1 Peter. Uh, we'll turn there. We'll take our lesson from 1 Peter today. You don't have to be very old to realize that uh, the moral condition of the world around us is in decline. It's not what it was just a few years ago. Behavior that would have been clearly and, and pretty much universally denounced uh, just a few years ago now is practiced and defended. Sexual mores have changed. There's more violent behavior today than there was in the past. It's, it sort of stuns me to hear people talk about um, uh, all the shootings going on and the dangerous places, and, and they, they talk about schools and uh, grocery stores and churches, you know. That's the world that we live in today. Profane speeches everywhere. The biblical model of the family is disintegrating before our very eyes, and at the same time, spirituality of people is diminishing. Fewer people believe in God, fewer people pray, fewer, fewer people attend a worship service of, of any kind. And that's just a sort of a general description of the world around us. No doubt there are good people trying to hold the line, but often they're treated with disdain and shouted down by the people who are uh, holding the microphones. And it seems that things are only going to get worse as time goes by. I hate to be a person like that, very negative, but it just seems that that's the trend, doesn't it? In the 11th Psalm, the psalmist says, and asks in verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it does certainly seem like the foundations, the moral foundations of our culture are are being eroded and being washed away and, and falling apart and crumbling. And so we might ask ourselves, what, what can I do? What can I do about that? What can I do to at least uh, uh, retard the, you know, the rapid pace at which things, these kind of things are, are happening? Well, ours is not the first generation to face this kind of situation. The Roman world, before the time of Christ, was a wicked place. It was, it was not a, a moral place. It was a very ungodly, immoral place. We're familiar with Romans chapter 1 and the description that Paul gives there of the Roman world. It, it sounds very much like our world. And so go over there and scan through that and see the things that were being done in the Roman world before Christ came onto the scene. Yet many Gentiles turned away during that time before Christ came to the scene, came, was born. Many Gentiles turned away from the idolatry and the immorality and the licentious uh, moral codes uh, associated with idolatry. And they were attracted to Judaism. So that when we read in the New Testament, the gospel going out into the Gentile world and, and then in a city going to a synagogue outside of Palestine, we find Gentiles there. Gentiles associated with the synagogue. Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism, 
because they had become sick and tired of the decadence and the immorality of idolatry and paganism, they could see these Jews over here worshiping one God and living a very moral life, and they were drawn to that. They were attracted to that. Now, what got me thinking about all this is a statement I came across in a book I was reading the other day called History of Christianity by Philip Johnson. It's not a new book. It's a fairly old book, in fact. But listen to what he has to say about this situation. The Jews, with their long and assured tradition of monotheism, they believed in one true God, had much to offer to a world looking for a sure single God. But their ethics were in some ways even more attractive than their theology. The Jews were admired for their stable family life, for their attachment to chastity, while avoiding the excesses of celibacy. A person can get married, that's fine. But they were chaste in their behavior. Uh, for the impressive relationship they sustained between children and parents, for the peculiar value they attached to human life, for their abhorrence of theft and scrupulosity in business. But even more striking was their system of communal charity. They'd always been accustomed to remit funds to Jerusalem for the upkeep of the temple and the relief of the poor. Look at the things that the Gentiles were attracted to in Judaism. The belief in one God, a moral sexual life, a stable family life, uh, respect for human life. And so you have people in the Gentile world that's declining deeper and deeper into immorality. And many go along, go along with that. But there are some who say, I'm tired of it. <laughs> I'm tired of the decadence. I'm tired of the debauchery. I'm tired of the immorality. I want something better. Look, there's a group of people over there. They've got it. I'm going go, to go see about that. And so you see, our... Situation is not brand new. It, people have faced it before. What can we do? So that raises this question. What, what can we do? What can we do in an immoral world like this to help draw people to the light of the gospel of Christ? Well, there might be a lot of things we can do, but I'm just going to talk about one this morning. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What can I do? <laughs> what can I do that might help people come out of the immoral world they live in and come to praise God in the end? Well, one thing we can do is keep our behavior excellent. Keep our conduct honorable, some versions say, among the Gentiles. We can live a holy life. Now I'll just stay in the book of 1 Peter for the most part today and talk about that idea. Living the right kind of life, an honorable life, an excellent life by God's standards as we live among a world that's declining further and further into immorality. So what can we do? Well, let's think about the situation that the first readers of 1 Peter were in. These readers were Gentiles. Now, I know that they were described in the second chapter in verse 9 as a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, language that was originally applied to Israel. But I think Peter is simply highlighting their new covenant relationship with God through Christ. 
And so just as Israel were the covenant people in the Old Testament, so now in Christ you are God's covenant people. You have that same covenant relationship that Israel had with God in the Old Testament. But there are other passages that give us some insight into their moral environment. Chapter 1, verse 18, for example, says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. And so they were involved in a, a futile way, a vain way of life, and they had inherited that from, from their forefathers. For generations they had been living that way. In verse 14, same chapter, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So the Gentile world was ignorant of the true God and ignorant of the way that He would have them to live. They, they were steeped in the ignorance of paganism and idolatry. And so, and so don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, in your former way of life. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Don't live any longer. You've been living for the flesh. But now you're to live for the will of God. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And so these people had been involved in idolatry, abominable idolatries. And all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so Paul describes the world in which they, they lived, what they came out of. They're Gentile people. They, their lifestyle is given to sensuality, excess, debauchery. Very much like the world Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 19. And so he says, That's, you spent long enough living that way. And then now you've come out of that environment, and now you've become Christians, and so you're to spend the, less, the rest of your days living according to the will of God. Their new lifestyle in Christ would make them very different, very different from the world around them. And so they lived a life of self-control and self-restraint. And the people would see that. Now, Obab over there, he's become a Christian. Now he used to live like us. He used to do the things that we do. But now he doesn't do those anymore. How odd. How strange. I'm surprised that he's made that change. And so that's the reaction that Paul, Peter describes here in this particular passage. Their reaction to these Christians, that is the world around them, their reaction to the Christians went further. Not only thought that they were strange or odd and surprised that they made such a significant change in their lives, but they began to mistreat them and persecute them. Several passages bear that out. Chapter 4 and verse 12 is one of those. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you also, at the revelation of His glory, may rejoice with exultation. 
And so there's a fiery trial that's come upon them because of their changed life, because of their newfound faith. In fact, in the passage we read at the beginning of chapter 4, they're surprised that you don't run with them to the same degree of dissipation, the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. They, they insult you and criticize you for it. And so what does Peter tell them to do? Here's the situation. You've come out of an immoral world. Lots of your former associates are still in that world. You've come out of that world. you become a Christian. And they think that's strange. They think that's odd. They're criticizing you. They're maligning you. There's a fiery trial that has come upon you. What, what, are, you, what are you to do? One of the things he tells them, as we've seen in chapter 2 and verse 12, you keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. You keep on living that morally excellent life. They're going to see that. They can't help but see that. And they may criticize you for a time, but in the end, they may come to praise God as a result of your good works. And so that's similar to the situation we're living in, isn't it? And our situation will probably get best before it gets, uh, gets worse before it gets better. So what, what can we do? K keep your conduct excellent. Don't compromise. <laughs> Don't be weary in well-doing. You just keep on living the way you should. And it may be that you go through a period of fiery trial and things are hard and people malign you. But in due time, it may very well be that some people grow tired of the decadent, immoral life that surrounds them, which they're immersed in, and they may see what you're doing and how it's different and be drawn to that and come and glorify God. Now, it might not happen in your lifetime, and it might not happen in your children's lifetime. Maybe it's your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. <laughs> but it may very well be. It's happened before, right? It's happened before. That people grew tired of the immorality around them and they accepted a more moral lifetime, a more godly lifestyle as they were attracted to God's people. Well, let's fill in some of the details as we go forward. Well, what can we do? Well, in chapter 1, we have the principle that undergirds our lifestyle, holiness. Verse 14 of chapter 1, As obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it's written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so here's the principle that undergirds, that supports, that provides a foundation for our life in Christ. We are to pursue holiness or develop a holy lifestyle. It's not a new concept. It's not new to the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament as well. In fact, he quotes here from Leviticus 19 in verse 2, You shall be holy, for I am holy. But the idea of pursuing holiness is found in the New Testament as well. Of course, it is overlaps from the old into the new. In Hebrews chapter 12, for example, in verse 14, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is just another way of saying holiness. Pursue peace with all men and pursue holiness. Something we have to pursue. We have to stretch for it, reach for it, pursue it, be diligent in our acquisition of it. Pursue holiness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so 
We're trying to bring that holiness to its full-grown, mature state. And so we're cleansing ourselves from everything that would defile us and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God Himself is the standard of holiness. And so our uh, pursuit of holiness is uh, the holy the idea of holiness and uh, uh, the, the character of holiness is found in God's character itself. Hebrews chapter 10, 12 and verse 10. They disciplined us, our fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed uh, best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in His holiness. See that? See the connection? The, the goal is to share in His holiness, to be holy as He is holy. And so we look to God to see the content of holiness. What, what does biblical holiness look like? Well, look at God and, and you'll find it. Look at His character and you'll find it. A couple of other statements. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. Everyone who has his hope fixed on Him purifies himself as he is pure. And then verse 7, same chapter, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is, is righteous, just as he is righteous. And, and so our, our standard of righteousness, purity, holiness is found in God Himself. That's not found in ourselves. Well, this is what I think would make a holy person, you know. And it's not found as we compare ourselves with others. Well, at least I'm more holy than He is. No, no, the standard is God, and we're falling short until we reach that standard, and so we're pursuing holiness or perfecting holiness. The moral, moral character of God hasn't changed over time, so we would expect the standard of holiness to be the same over time. The details of holiness are found to us, are found by us in God's Word. 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it may, you may grow in respect of salvation. And so the, the challenge is be holy, for God is holy. Well, how do I do that? Look into God's Word, and there we'll find the details, how to become and maintain God's standard of holiness. By definition, Holiness sets God's people apart from the world. By, by definition, if we're holy people and we're pursuing holiness, we're going to be set apart from the world around us. That's, that's what it means to be holy. And so the world is going to see that. And uh, they're going to be affected by it. It might put some people off, but others may be attracted to that by our lifestyle, the way we live, and come to glorify God themselves. Well, as holy people, there are some things that we need to avoid. First Peter talks about some of those. Look at First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, and so as we develop this holiness, here are some things to put aside. Uh, malice, that's just ugliness, badness, just, just rottenness. Just put that, put that aside, reject that. All deceit, not most deceit, <laughs> all deceit, all slander, get rid of that. Hypocrisy and envy as well. Now, some of these words, hypocrisy, envy, and slander 
may not be brought out in our English translations, but they're plural. They're plural in number. And so, technically, hypocrisies, envies, slanders. And the idea is, reject every act of malice. Reject every act of hypocrisy. Every act of slander. Every act of these things. Put, put it away. Put, put them away. That's part of becoming holy. There are some things to avoid. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. The ancient world, like our world, was given to indulgence of fleshly desires of all kinds, of all sorts. And so we want to abstain from those as we pursue holiness. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. We've already looked at that uh, and, uh, in, our, in our study together. But he lists some very specific actions and behaviors in verse 3. The ancient world was characterized by sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Well, we know what all that is. Our world is characterized by the same thing. Sensuality. We, we understand that. We're bombarded with images of sensuality and drunkenness, drinking parties, and maybe uh, bowing down to a carved image is not our particular problem, but we sure are given to the excesses of dissipation. I don't usually talk like that. Excesses of dissipation. What, what, what might that mean? And you might have a version that maybe is a little bit uh, easier to understand, but just overflowing debauchery, drunkenness, carousing, and that, that kind of life. And so we want to get, stay apart from that, be apart from that. All of these are behaviors commonly found in the world, and if we abstain, we'll be noticeably different. Some may malign us, like these were maligned. But others may see our good works and come to glorify God. But perfecting holiness involves more than just abstaining from things. There are some things that we need to develop as well. Look at, well, there are several things mentioned in 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to look at one particular passage in just a moment. But uh, he says that we are to honor all people, chapter 12 and verse 17. Honor all people. Let's, let me say that again. <laughs> Honor all people. That, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? doesn't say, Honor everybody you agree with. <laughs> Honor everybody that sees things the way you do. Honor all people. And that's something that we need to develop. Chapter 4 and verse 8 is another passage that just one of these things we need to develop. Chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. We need to love each other. We need to cultivate love for each other. We need to develop more and more love for each other. Uh, and uh, chapter 5 and verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you in due time. And uh, he also says, uh, verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Honor all people. Love one another. Don't be anxious. Well, that, that's part of perfecting holiness, developing holiness. 
In a world filled with malice, envy, resentment, hatred, those who love each other stand out. Those who honor everyone stand out. Those who aren't anxious stand out. People are going to see that, and maybe in time they'll be attracted to that. One passage in this regard stands out, verse, chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. Boy, in a world that's divided, <laughs> here's a group of, what, a couple of hundred people? They live in harmony. Oh, superficially, there's a lot of differences between them. There's a difference in economic level. There's a difference in educational level. There's a difference in gender. There's a difference in race. But you know what? Those people love each other, and they get along with each other. <laughs> wow, what, how different is that from the world around us? It reminded me of a passage or two in John chapter 13. Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet. And he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The world out there will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Well, that's, that's a powerful testimony, isn't it, to the, the superiority of the gospel. So to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so this passage stands out in developing holiness. Some things to avoid, some things to develop in our pursuit of holiness. Holiness is the foundational principle upon which our moral lives are built. And here are at least some of the details. Our objective, of course, is to bring others to God through our consistent daily lifestyle, avoiding immorality and exhibiting godliness, as we began with chapter 2 and verse 12. Now, there are a few other things involved in this as well. Let's, let's talk about those. Build strong families. Now remember that statement we read from Philip Johnson in the beginning, long time ago? He talked about how the Gentile world was attracted to Judaism because of the strong families that were found there. Well, if it's happened once, it can happen again, right? <laughs> and so as the family structure is dis disintegrating before our very eyes... When people see, here are some people that have strong families, husbands and wives that are committed to each other. They love each other. They respect each other. They're raising their children. They love their children and teaching their children what they need to know. That is great. I want to be a part of that. <laughs> Build strong families. Peter addresses the role of husbands and wives specifically. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, 
so that your prayers will not be hindered. Live your with, with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way. One writer comments that has to do with personal insight that leads to loving and considerate care in all aspects of the marriage. Loving and considerate care. And so here's a husband who loves his wife. He treats her in a a considerate way. Peter goes on to say he honors her. And so he loves her. He seeks to understand her. He honors her. And he treats her accordingly. Other passages like Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Uh, Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. Language like that, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. And so so here's here's the, the relationship of a husband toward his wife. He loves her. He respects her. He honors her. He nourishes her. He provides for her. He cares for her. He gives Himself for her. People see that, and they say, I want, I want some of that. I want whatever they've got. And, and Peter addresses wives as well, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste behavior, chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable quality of gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And so Peter describes wives that honor and respect, who are faithful to, submit to, and yes, even obey their husbands. Now Peter doesn't address children specifically, but we know other passages in the New Testament do. And the Old Testament as well, Deuteronomy 6. You teach these things to your children. (laughs) You talk about them when you rise up in the morning, when you lie down at night, when you walk in in the way. You're, You're teaching these things to your children. Of course, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so Peter and the rest of the New Testament describe a loving, committed family relationship in which each party honors and respects the other. Firm faith is found there, along with understanding and patience. And the result is a strong, long-lasting relationship Parents are active in the lives of their children. They teach them in word and deed what they need to know to live the right way in the world. A strong family is a powerful testimony to an immoral world. Many of the families around us are in shambles, just, just in shambles. And so we can testify to them, so to speak, through the strong biblical family as we, as we develop it. A couple of other observations to make uh, regarding this honorable conduct. Be good citizens. First Peter addresses that as well. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. In the interest of the Lord's cause, submit yourselves to every human institution, whether to king as the one in authority, or to governors, is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and 
the praise of those who do right. Such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And so we're to submit to the government. We're to be good citizens. Paul explains that the powers that be have been ordained by God, so rebelling against the government is to rebel against what God has ordained. So Peter tells us to submit for the Lord's sake to these ordinances of man. It involves honoring the king, as we see in verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then it manifests itself in obeying the law. And what he says is in verse 15, we are going to win over a government that's hostile to us by our good behavior and our cooperation. (laughs) And so you remember that Roman government turns against the Christians. Peter and Paul and others say, you keep your behavior honorable. You do good. And in doing good, we put to silence the foolishness of Uh, the ignorance of foolish men, be good citizens. And then, endure suffering willingly. As we've indicated throughout, as we live a godly lifestyle, some people are not going to appreciate it, and they're going to malign us, as they did the people we read about in 1 Peter chapter 4. But we need to endure the malignity, the maligning, we need to endure that uh, willingly. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. <laughs> Endure suffering willingly. That's going to happen to us, but endure it willingly. And then the last point is, do all things with joy. This is is critical. (laughs) This is is as important, maybe more important than some of these other things I've said. And I, I don't know that it gets its due in our discussions sometimes, But it's a very important, even essential part of our life as Christians. All of us should go on our way rejoicing. Who who should rejoice more than us? We're children of the King. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're in fellowship with God. Go on our way rejoicing. When the angels announced the coming birth of Christ, they said, or the angels said, I bring you good news of great joy which will be to all the people. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. As we grow in the Spirit, our joy increases. Philippians is a book which features, highlights, the joy that ought to be found in Christians. Sixteen times Paul writes, Rejoice, or I rejoice, or refers to joy in one way or another. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Who in the world would be attracted to a group of unhappy, dissatisfied, frustrated, bitter, miserable people? I tell you, those people are so miserable and unhappy, and I want to be a part of that. (laughs) No. That doesn't happen, does it? These people have something to rejoice about. 
These people have an optimistic attitude in life. They, they look at life and enjoy what is going on with them. <laughs> you know? I, I want to find out something about that. If we can take our attention away from how unfair the world is to us and project joy in spite of life's challenges and hardships, others will see it and be drawn to it. Do all of this with joy. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going through a hard time right now, but I'm telling you, you need to rejoice because salvation awaits you. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Keep on rejoicing. So what can we do to draw people to the gospel? Well, one thing Peter says is be ready. Be ready to give, to make a defense for the hope that's in you. That's, that's one thing we can do. But here's, here's another thing we can do while we're doing that. Not, it's not an either-or situation. We can live a godly life in an ungodly world. And, you know, everybody can do this. All of us can do this. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be able to give a complex, sophisticated, philosophical defense of the gospel. Now, if you can do that, and great, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad for it. But every one of us can present the gospel in a positive way through the way we conduct our lives. And we hope that eventually the stench of the world will become so great <clears throat> and the fragrant aroma of the gospel so appealing that people will be drawn to Christ. Every one of us can do this. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we acknowledge your strength, your power, your wisdom. We bow before you as our creator and our sustainer. And we acknowledge, Father, that one day we will bow before you as our judge. Our Father, we praise you for your holiness. And it's our desire, Father, to be perfect in holiness as you are perfect in your holiness. And help us, Father, not to be satisfied with our lives until we attain that. Help us to eliminate everything that would defile the flesh and spirit as we perfect holiness in the fear of you. Our Father, we're mindful of the world around us. We see it decaying before our eyes. We see its rapid decline into immorality. We're disturbed by it, Father. We're concerned about what we might do to, to uh, at least slow the decline away from you. We know people, Father, that may be caught up in this. We're concerned about them and wonder what we can do to help draw them out of this immoral, decadent world and to glorify you. We're grateful, Father, that you show us the way that we might have an influence on the world around us through our conduct, through our daily consistent behavior. 
Help us, Father, to pursue holiness. Help us to eliminate the things that are contrary to holiness. Help us to develop those qualities that are consistent with us, with it. Help us build our families, Father, according to your word. Help us to be good citizens in the world around us. Help us, Father, to endure suffering willingly. And help us, Father, to do it all with joy. That we are your children, that we are the inheritors of your promise, that we will inherit glory one day. Help us, Father, do all these things with joy. We see the example of Christ, Father, the way He lived His life in adverse circumstances. We're so thankful that He came to this world and did that for us. And ultimately, He went to the cross, shed His blood for our sins so that we might be Your children. Help us to remember that every day that we live and be true to it. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you're subject to the invitation,